on the notes and then post them in the hallway uh, by the lobby. And uh, just one set of notes this week from Rose Brown, but uh, really got some profound insights. I think of a young girl thinking about how all of the presuppositions of all of our thinking are founded on Jesus Christ and how humility is the beginning of knowledge. I mean, just profound truths for young children to be thinking about. So it's an encouragement. Good job, Rose. Keep up the good work. So uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 12, the first 12 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. Those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this? This scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word that uh, teaches us about the true story of the world and above all about our creator and our redeemer. Lord, we long to know you more deeply and and to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And so may your Holy Spirit use your word to form such love in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, to me, one of the more interesting insights from anthropologists and from psychologists and even neuroscientists over maybe the last century or so has uh, been that humans largely understand themselves and they understand the world in terms of stories. And uh, this is true of all cultures. Uh, They explain the world through stories and uh, legends and myths. This is true of our culture. I know that we think of our culture uh, sometimes as a very scientific, modern uh, culture. But if you ask any secular modern person where life came from, they would tell you the great modern myth of evolution. And and when I use the word myth, uh, I'm not talking about whether a story is true or false, though I, I do think evolution is... Is, has been shown to be not true. Um, what I mean is that it's a great story. And if you ask someone to tell you where life came from on this planet, they would not tell you scientific data. They would tell you a story. 
And the story would be about this one little amoeba that was all alone in the vast ocean. And it was, the waves were crashing against it. And yet against all odds, this little amoeba multiplied and grew fins and, you know, eventually made it to land and the legs grew out of it. And over eons, I mean, this vast story of billions of years finally rose up to become the ruler of the world, which is man. And eventually the sun would grow cold and man himself would become extinct. And so it's this great, tragic, epic myth. That's how we explain the world that we live in. And, uh, and now generally people say that we do this because we're humans and that we've evolved in a certain way to tell stories for some reason. But the Bible says something far more wild, far more thrilling, and yet I also think far more reasonable is that the reason our brains have been structured in a way to think in stories is because our brains are right. We are actually living in a real story. That is the truth. And uh, in these verses, Jesus is in a short and powerful parable summarizing the story that you and I are all a part of. And if you want to understand how to be a human being, this is the story that you need to know about yourself, about the world you are living in, and about the God who made this world. And so this morning, I want to point out three basic parts to the story that you and I are all a part of. This is what they are. Is that God made a good world. Second, humanity is in rebellion against our Creator. And third, so God sent His Son into the world to make all things right. Okay, three simple kind of acts you might say to the story is that God made a good world, that humanity is in rebellion against our Creator, and so God sent his son into the world to make all things right. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And, and let me just make one comment before we jump into it. Uh, Jesus' parable here is about a vineyard. And uh, it's, this parable is not properly about humanity as a whole or even the world as a whole. Um, it's specifically about Israel, God's chosen people. And even that image of a vineyard that's used in this parable, it comes from Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament where, uh, where Israel was called God's vineyard and it was supposed to be fruitful and bear, uh, bear fruit. And so the tenants in this, uh, this parable of the vineyard are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem when he's telling this parable. And uh, it's the week in, of the Passover week. At the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. So he's been having all these debates and discussion with the leaders there. So the tenants in the, in the parable are, are these leaders. And then the servants who come to the tenants are the prophets, all the prophets of the Old Testament who came to God's people to call them back to the Lord. And so Jesus is saying that the religious leaders who have killed the prophets throughout history are now going to kill him who is the son who has come to his vineyard. And, uh, and so that's properly speaking what this parable is about. But there is a parallel between Israel's story and the story of humanity as a whole. It's like Israel is a small microcosm of, Israel, uh, of humanity as a whole. It's a small humanity. And the vineyard imagery, of course, doesn't just go back to Isaiah chapter 5. It brings us back to the beginning of the Bible where when God made his world, it was filled with fruit and he put humans as his tenants in his good green earth. 
And, uh, and, of course, it brings us back to the Garden of Eden where our first parents were placed, where there were all these fruit. And so the story of Israel is kind of a small picture of the story of humanity. And so that's why I'm going to be talking about this uh, text in terms of the broader story this morning. So what story are we living in? Well, part one is that God made a good world. God made a good world. And the way Jesus describes God in this parable is, is like a master of a house who's setting up a vineyard. And you see it there in verse 1. It says, And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And this is such a great picture of God. God setting up a place for humans to come and live. He makes this place for humans to come and live. And, and, uh, and it's a picture of the way the world is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a creative place that we have work to do. You know, it's a vineyard. You're supposed to cultivate the vineyard and get fruit. And then you transform the fruit and make something out of it. You make wine out of it. And so we have work to do, good creative work to do. It was supposed to be a place of safety. You know, it says that he made a fence and there was a tower there. So God wanted humans to live an experience of doing their work in safety and his presence. And of course, it was the world is supposed to be a place of pleasure because there was a wine press there. God filled his world with pleasures. You know, the devil has never invented one pleasure. All the pleasures of the world were created by God. He's so abundantly good. And we're supposed to, of course, use those pleasures in the ways that God intended them to. But that's the world that God made. And the image of the world in these verses, uh, the image of God in these verses is that he's generous. He makes a safe place, and he wants us to enjoy it. And I, I remember when I was first studying this parable uh, a few years ago, I was sitting at uh, Woods Coffee down at Boulevard, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was writing, working on a sermon, looking out at, at the San Juan Islands, and uh, the sun was glittering on the waters, and there was all these people riding bikes and going on walks, talking to one another and getting their coffee. And you just say, what a, just a glorious place that we get to live in. I mean, it's just magical that we even get to live in a place like this. And, um, and what that vision is supposed to do for us is we're supposed to look at the world and it's supposed to sing to us of the goodness and beauty and wisdom and power of God. And we're supposed to be filled with delight in the creator who made it. But increasingly, it does not do that for us in our culture. And a few years ago, I was reading a book called The Secular Age, which is um, it's a long uh, account of how Western culture went from being a Christian culture 500 years ago to now basically being a non-Christian, you know, pretty hostily non-Christian. If you take Europe and, and the direction of, of the United States and Canada. And, um, and so over that time, people living in the Western world have experienced what's called disenchantment. The symbolic meaning of the, of the universe that's charged with God's glory has faded. And we no longer hear what the creation was meant to be singing to us. And so the more that we say that there's no God and we're just a collection of atoms that have randomly formed into living organisms, the more, more and more life in the world seem meaningless. And so there is a deep despair that kind of hovers over our culture and finding meaning in life feels so fragile it's so hard to find deep meaning and things that used to be filled with sacred meaning like weddings or a child being born or 
or deep, loyal friendships, we've kind of lost an awe for these things. And there's a flatness to everyday life. And so there's a deep sense that something is missing about human existence. And the Bible is screaming at us, wake up. Wake up. The earth is singing of the goodness of God. And if you only have ears to hear it, you will hear about your Creator. And so the first part of the story of the Bible is that God made a good world and we are living in a great vineyard made by God. And, you know, many people in Bellingham would kind of resonate with this and say, yeah, we, lo- we live in a beautiful place. We love going up on the mountains. And actually, you know, going up to the mountains, that's where my church is. I don't need to go to a church like this because my church is on the mountains. That's where I connect with God and I feel a sense of transcendence and beauty. But this parable tells us that there's more to God's world than just playing in his mountains and, you know, receiving the enjoyment of the things he made. Look at what it says in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. What this passage tells us is that God's vineyard is not simply for us to enjoy, but we're supposed to make something of the vineyard and offer it back to him. He wants to receive something from us. And so what that means is that you and I were created to live in the world like priests, where we receive the offerings of God and then we offer them back to him. And so all of our work, all of our relationships, all of our words, everything that we do in life is meant to be a response. God's been generous to us, and then we respond to him and say, everything that I've done is my gift back to you. It's a, it's a giving relationship of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. That's how we were supposed to live with God. And the image of this passage is a vineyard, which means God, God wants fruit from us. And you say, well, what is the fruit that God wants from us? Well, you know, one thing, some of you know the verse in Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of these things, that there's a fruitful life. It's a description of a fruitful life that God wants us to offer back to him. And, uh, and this is the real challenge for people living in Bellingham because the reason why going up to the mountain is so serene and we love being up in the mountains, you know what's not up in the mountains? Any people. I went up to the mountains to get away from people. And that's what's real different about this church than going up on the mountain is when you come to this church, you got to face people. you got to interact with people because God is a God of love. And you, you can't have love unless there's a community of people who are loving uh, God. And this is what he wants for us is to offer back to him a community of love where we do work that is all done to his glory and for the benefit of of one another. So the setting of this story is that God gives us a good world and we are supposed to give back to him the fruit of a life of all of our work that is done to glorify him and to love one another. But as we all recognize, life in this world is not like this. Loving and receiving and giving God and with each other, it's not that way. Why is the world not that way? If this is the way that God made it, why doesn't it work that way? Well, that's the second, that's kind of act two of the story that we're all living in. And act two is that, so first, God made a good world. Second, humanity is in rebellion against our creator. Humanity is in rebellion against our creator. Now, whatever story you believe about this world 
if it's really going to be a story to explain humanity, you have to somehow explain how did things go wrong. Why are things, we all have a sense that something is wrong with humanity and with ourselves. And so what has gone wrong? And the Bible's explanation is that we have rejected God and been alienated from him. And that's why we don't function right. And I, I, let's just say that, first of all, that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why humanity is so broken. I mean, that's totally reasonable. And so what does rebellion against God look like? Well, I want to point out a couple things from this passage. Okay, The first is that we don't listen to God. We don't listen to what he wants to say to us. We shut him out. And in verse 2 again, you see what it says. When the, se- when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the uh, fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and uh, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, specifically, Jesus is saying that God sent prophets to his people Israel throughout the Old Testament. Over hundreds of years, he was like, I'm trying to speak to you people, and they're not. They're like, we don't want to hear what the prophets have to say, and so they'd kill him, and they'd beat him. And, you know, this is true. There's kind of traditional accounts of, of uh, Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of the, the minor prophets who received persecution from God's people because they brought God's message to them and called them to obedience. But the main thing that you read over and over through the Old Testament is they would not hear. They were unwilling to listen to what God had to say. They had stubborn, hard hearts that said to God, we don't want you to tell us what to do. The rebellious heart refuses to listen to God. And of course, God's spoken to us in many ways. He's spoken to us through his creation. The you know, Bible says that the creation is... is day after day, singing to us of God's wisdom and power and his righteousness. And, uh, but we also, of course, have the Bible. God has given us this rich revelation. He said, I'm a, this whole story of who I am. And you can kind of tell, how much do we want to hear it? Well, how much time do we spend reading it? It kind of it tells how much do we want to hear what God has to say to us. And I think that we assume that it should be very easy for us to understand and not have to be a lifetime of study to understand the mystery of who God is. And then, of course, most profoundly, God has spoken to us in his son, Jesus, who is God who came and lived among us. And all of us, to varying degrees, know what that's like to say, I don't really want to hear what God has to say to me because he's going to say things that I didn't want to hear. So I'm just going to shut him out. How serious is that to refuse to listen to God? To not listen to someone is one of the purest forms of hatred, to not listen to them. You know, uh, you, know you imagine if your spouse is talking to you, you know, if you either listen to them and respond with compassion, or even if you get angry and get engaged in an argument, you're at least showing that you care about what they're saying. <laughs> you're emotionally engaged. If you pretend that they're not even there, I mean, there's no greater form of just despising someone to say, I'm not even going to acknowledge that you're talking or that you even exist. That's what we do. And what's amazing is that we all have the capacity to receive from God life, food, friendship, work, pleasure, provision. I mean, he abundantly pours blessings on us. 
and to completely ignore him. It's, it's within our nature to ignore him for decades, for years, to say not even a word to him. And so the per, first part of our rebellion is to not listen to God, which is essentially to hate him. And that might be a new thought to you. You don't think of yourself, I don't hate God. But indifference is hatred. Ignoring is hatred. It's like that in any other kind of relationship. And it's true with God as well. So in that regard, humanity is, is in rebellion. It has a hatred towards God. We don't want to hear what he has to say. And then the second thing is that not only that, not only do we not want to hear from him, but we actually think we are God. <laughs> Our rebellion. Not only do we not want to hear him, we prefer to be God. And the main thing in this passage is the tenants have taken over the vineyard. And they said, you know what? It's not your vineyard anymore. This is our vineyard. And we don't have to send you any of the fruit. And we don't have to listen to your servants. This belongs to us. And we're going to do our own will here. And I would say, you know, people in our culture are very much like the tenants in this story. I want to enjoy the abundance of God's beautiful vineyard, but don't you dare tell me to do anything with my life or what I should believe. I want all your gifts and all your blessings and the richness of living in a place like Bellingham with the beautiful mountains and the sunshine and the great culture that we, you know, and the peace and the safety that we have here, all these things, and yet I want to be my own God. Now, you might not think that's such a terrible thing to approach life that way. You know, if I'm not hurting anyone, why does God care if I don't just enjoy what he has and ignore him? And, well, I'll give you an illustration. You know, uh, my parents, when I uh, uh, went to college, they had decided that they were going to pay for my college, for me to go to college. And they're like, you know, we want to help you get a good start, and they could afford that. And so I went to Western Washington University, and, you know, they're helping me get a start. And then later on, I decided I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to start a church. And I, I, I did some fundraising, both for my seminary and for the church. And they said, you know what, Nate, we, we want to help you out. We're behind you. We want to get behind you. And so they were constantly not only just financially, but encouraging, and they would, uh, they would, uh, we had five kids in five years, and right when the church was starting, and we had these uh, uh, twins, our fourth and fifth kids were twins, so we went from two kids to five kids in a 12-month period, and they said, okay, we're going to come up, and we're going to help you with those twins, and you imagine they're just pouring all this blessing on me. I said, you know, th this is great. I, I'll, I'll take the money. I'll take the child care, but listen, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want a relationship with you. Don't call me. Don't, we're not, you're not going to come over. Uh, and I, you just stay away. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Now, if I did that, what would you think of that? You would say, that entitled punk that just thinks he can just take all this stuff and have no sense of relationship in return. You say, absolutely not. And what should the parents do? Cut it off. No, we're not going to do that. We are not going to put up with that. You know, and, but this is exactly what humanity by nature does with God. And of course, God's incredibly patient that he just continues to pour uh, uh, blessings on us. Why is humanity so selfish, so bitter, so depressed, so violent, and so lonely? This is the answer is because we as a race are in rebellion against God. We do not want to listen to him, and we want to be our own gods and shut him out, and we want to be in control, 
of his vineyard. Now, at this point in the story, it would not be in the least unreasonable to think that God would say, okay, I gave you this world, and I gave you life, and I sent you messengers telling you my, uh, my will for you, and you've completely ignored me, and you're, you're violent with each other, and you don't love each other the way that I told you to, uh, because you don't listen to me, and you know what? I'm just going to get rid of all you. I'm done with this. You know, you think, why is he putting up for all these centuries, thousands of years, just patient? He, you know, that's the thing that the Bible says over and over again. God is slow to anger. He's waiting for his people to turn to him. And so even though that would not be unreasonable, that's not what God does. He doesn't shut us off. And so we th- see the third act in the story of what God does, the story that we're living a part of. And this is what it is, is that so then God sent his own son into the world to make all things right. He wants to be reconciled to us. So he sends his own son. Who else, you know, my, my own heart, I'm going to send to you. And you see there in verse 6 how it says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, if you've ever wondered why Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God, this is the reason, because he is God's son. And, and he's the only person in history who's ever claimed something like that seriously. I mean, there are people who claim to be God's son, but we all know they're crazy. But in terms of like literally, oh, this person is very respectable, none of the other religious leaders claim things like that. They might have been said, oh yeah, we're one of the messengers that was mentioned earlier in the story. Maybe Buddha has said that, or, or Muhammad. Or, um, or someone like Confucius might say, hey, I'm a messenger who's teaching you about wisdom. But no one even pretended to say, I am God himself. The, I'm the divine son who has taken on a human form to walk among humanity and say, I want to reconcile you to your creator. And so this is the climactic moment of the story of the world is when God's son came. And what's amazing is that Jesus came to rebellious humanity and he gave a free offer of pardon to everyone. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Is he's saying to all people in every land, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how stubborn and, or, or bitter or violent or how shameful your sins are. He gives an open offer to all people everywhere to say, you can have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. You can, the shame taken away. And you can be adopted into God's family and reconciled to the Lord. And you, and you know what? I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit into your heart so that you'll actually be filled with love and start to love the way that God originally intended you. And so in this parable, Jesus is giving that offer to all people. And he says there are really two responses that you can have to the Son who God has sent. You can either reject him or you can receive him. And so the first option you see is that you can reject him. And this is, you see it there in verse 7. It says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see what they said? They were like, no, we don't want to give the vineyard back over to the creator who rightfully owns it. We want to own this world. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own landlords. We want to be our own owners. Now, what Jesus is predicting here is his death at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, But it's clear that there's going to be a portion of humanity that will reject God's own son that he sent as an offer of of reconciliation. 
Now, most people in our culture, the reason they uh, reject Jesus is largely because they say, well, Jesus is great and all. He's got good things to say. I just don't believe that he's the son of God. I don't believe that he has an eternal kingdom. And if that's you this morning, you say, you know, I don't really think he's the son of God. I don't think he has an eternal kingdom. I would point you to history to test that theory and be open to, okay, how would I know? Well, Jesus claimed to be building a civilization, a kingdom, an empire in the earth. And it's now 2,000 years old. It's got over 2 billion citizens in it. And you compare him to anyone else. Compare him to Alexander the Great. Where's his kingdom? Gone. I mean, long gone. Where's Caesar's Roman Empire? Long gone. Not even, you know, it's, there's barely some ruins some places you can find of it. You know, where is Charlemagne or Napoleon or whoever? Where are their kingdoms? Completely gone because they didn't have eternal kingdoms. Where's Jesus' kingdom? It is accelerating in its growth even this day, all over the world, in Africa, in China, in, uh, um, in India, in, in South America, he is the true king of the world, and history has proven it. And he has called all people everywhere to decision to bow their knee before him. And if you think that it is an obvious decision to reject Jesus, I would tell you you have simply not looked at the data. Okay, so one response is, is to reject him. But of course, that's not the hope of the Bible. It's not the hope of this passage. It's not the hope of why Jesus came. Jesus came so that we would receive him. What does it mean to receive him? Well, you see there in verse 9 how it says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, this is an interesting saying where it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? Well, it says that God is building a house, a, a temple in which God lives in, except this temple isn't a literal building. It's a temple that's made out of people. And the people are like these living stones that get fit together into a structure. And God says, I'm going to come live among you. And the cornerstone of the building where all the living stones are built together is Jesus. They're all founded. He sets the building. He makes it right. And he, 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 he gives a structure to it. And that's what this community is. You all are the living stones that God is shaping to fit together and the cornerstone that ties all of us together is the person of Christ. So to receive Jesus is to make him as the foundation of your life. It means, and to join the community of living stones that are built on him. And so practically speaking, that means putting your trust in him. When you make Jesus the foundation of your life, it means you put the weight of your life upon him. You trust him. You follow his guidance to make your life straight. And then also it means to be baptized into his church, which is the community of living stones. That's how you become one of the stones in the house that God is building. And so this morning, what is the story that is defining who you are and your life in the world that you are living in? Is it the world that is meaningless, a vast universe of just atoms and energy, where my only purpose is to do whatever I want? 
Is it that I'm my own God and I don't need to listen to what my Creator says to me? Or is the story that God is generous and He's made a good and beautiful world and He's entrusted it to us and He's spoken to us in nature and in the Bible and He sent to us His Son? And when we believe in Him, may He re-enchant our vision of the great story that we are living in. Let us receive God's Son. Let us be built into the house of which He is the cornerstone, for this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our sight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've told us the truth of, of our world and a story that we could never have discovered on our own. And yet here, our Lord, in, in just such a few words, reorients us to the true story that we are all a part of. And I pray for, for any here who do not yet know the great love of Jesus Christ, would um, you grant to them faith and trust in him and hearts that they might become one of the living stones in the great house that he is building where you have come to dwell among us. And so, Lord, this is beautiful. It is marvelous in our sight, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.